Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily with me, Gavin Esler. Now, imagine if you can a country in which in the course of just a few days, there was a new head of state, a new prime minister, and in terms of the key personnel, a new government too. All these momentous changes took place without a revolution, without much fuss, without a codified constitution, and without any gunfire except to celebrate the new king, Charles III but they also took place without a vote of the British people. You could conclude that these extraordinary events show why the British system of government works. It must be the envy of the world. But you might also conclude that the British have constructed a very odd democracy indeed. Here to help us through the intricacies and eccentricities of these challenging times and to talk about the priorities of the new king and the new prime minister, I'm joined by Sir Anthony Selden, the hugely acclaimed contemporary historian, author of some 40 books, including those on Prime Ministers Thatcher, Blair, Cameron, and perhaps eventually, if she lasts long enough, Liz Truss. Welcome to the bunker, Sir Anthony, from a rather noisy central London among the crowds paying their respects. Very nice to have you here, and thank you for asking me. Let's begin, if we may, uh, Sir Anthony, with your reflection on these very peculiar times that we're going through. To the best of my knowledge, this country has not had a new prime minister and a new monarch uh, at the same time. And that's very significant for a country and raises all kinds of questions about, are we a democracy? But also anyone looking at this country from abroad or from outer space could only conclude of those two, the head of the change of head of uh, state is far more important. It, it, it's where all the focus is. Uh, we've almost forgotten that there's a new prime minister in all the concern, the wall-to-wall reporting and broadcasting, almost all about the dead queen and uh, speculation about the new king. So saying something about the nature of democracy in this country, that we have a constitutional monarchy at all, it seems to loom so largely, if not in power, then certainly it's got such a grip over the whole uh, of the imagination of the British people. Let's begin then with the head of state. I mean, King Charles, I suspect, sees himself very much as the glue of the union of the United Kingdom. His top priority is to be, be seen in Edinburgh, Belfast and Cardiff, as well as in London. How far... Is that possible for him to do that when, as we know, the impetus for independence in Scotland is a political one in which the SNP would quite happily keep him as head of state anyway? So it doesn't really matter in a sense, does it, him being seen in these places? Well, it does matter. The primary job of a monarch throughout history has been to secure the succession, which, of course, he's done. And and the succession is pretty much guaranteed for the 22nd century but also to keep the country united. He is clearly passionate about that. It was hard not to detect an element of opportunity in uh, Nicola Sturgeon when she was talking about how great Queen Elizabeth was, but she was much less keen to praise Charles's work in Scotland. You say uh, that an independent Scotland could keep the monarch, uh, but it wouldn't be the same relationship and it wouldn't be what the royal family would want to see. The monarchy is different to the prime ministers because they embody the continuity. They're not come and go, 13, 14 and 15 and counting prime ministers to one head of state. They do have that sense of investment in what it means to be a country and how to preserve that country.
In terms of the Commonwealth, we already can see that uh, Barbados has said no to the British monarch as head of state. Antigua and Barbuda are holding a referendum on it. In June 2022, uh, the Jamaican government announced they want to be a republic uh, by 2025. So could this cascade down Australia and other countries? And even if prime ministers are not that bothered about the Commonwealth, perhaps the British people are as a sign of our influence around the world, which may be diminishing. All of that could be absolutely the case. There's clearly momentum. And once you start losing countries from the Commonwealth, it makes it hard for other countries to make a positive case. Inertia was always an easy position to be. We don't want to be the first to rock the boat. If that stream becomes a river, it will be difficult even for giant Australia to, to resist it. Um, already, clearly, many people feel loyalty to the departed monarch, the Queen, but don't to Charles. So I think it's very hard to say at this moment, it, I think we'll know more in a year when we've seen whether he is able to get cut through uh, into those spaces. I suspect the Caribbean is gone for the Commonwealth. In terms of the constitution, uh, we, we sometimes say we have an unwritten constitution. We have all kinds of written bits, actually, but it's uncodified. There is no one document. You can't do what you can do in the United States and go and have a look at it or Google it. Yeah. Are we in a bit of a mess, uh, given the way in which the different parts of the United Kingdom are moving and the way in which, I, I suppose, we're kind of making up traditions as we go along in terms of how we get our prime minister? That is part of the continuity and the secret of, uh, of the continuity of the country. It does have the longest serving functioning uh, monarchy. When the, the, the Queen came to the throne, there were 100 monarchies. Now outside the Commonwealth, there are only 26. And they're either absolute monarchies like in Saudi Arabia, or they're largely irrelevant. To have a functioning constitutional democracy, Japan manages it. Uh, and Britain does, but very few others. And the point is that it's managed to make those adaptations without a written, single document, written constitution. Indeed, those countries that have those single constitutions, the Weimar Republic, for example, they often don't last. Part of the reason the US constitution has survived for 245 years is its brevity. I think it's only 7,000 words. It's easier to have a living document if it is short and easy to adapt and, and change. So I don't think that the country, I think actually the opposite. I think the fact that there has been a smooth transition to Charles, who many people were, were worried about in as far as it matters about the succession of the monarchy and the fact that William clearly is a popular, stable figure now as the Prince of Wales. I think that that underpins that monarchical part of the constitution. And I think that Britain has come through Brexit, not mentioned so far, but I know that very much in your mind, it's, it's, which, was, which has ushered in the biggest domestic upheaval that this country has seen, this very weak unremarked uh, within the last week, we've seen a permanent secretary fired from the Treasury. The civil service under attack has never before since the Northcott Trevelyan reforms in the 19th century. So the impartiality of the civil service, I think that is a significant moment, as is the blithe disregard of the constitution by the outgoing prime minister, uh, with little sense that the incoming prime minister is herself going to see her position as a defender of the constitution. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. 
Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. Not in terms of any constitutional document, but in terms of the norms of behaviour that we'd expect from people in power. I mean, uh, in the United States, one of the norms of behaviour is that presidents concede elections if they lose. And and we have seen that overturned by Donald Trump. Are we in a situation post-Boris Johnson where he was elected in some way because he was a bit of a rule breaker, but he has changed the old, old idea of your constitutional colleague, uh, Peter Hennessy, of the good chap theory of government. By bending the rules so much, we're not quite clear what is and what is not acceptable now. Do, do, do you see the point I'm trying to get at here? Democracy is under threat. Look at the eclipse of, of democracies and the quality of democratic life globally, which is a real concern. And What's happened in America is deeply worrying to have a, a, a president who doesn't accept the legality and the authenticity of the electoral process. That undermines the whole process in a system where he is also the head of state. In this country, Boris Johnson did more than any other prime minister to damage the integrity of democratic life, justifying it certainly initially over Brexit, because he was saying Parliament was frustrating the democratic will of the people. The Prime Minister has weak controls over them if you have a big majority, because you're not going to get that threat coming back from the House of Commons, and the House of Lords can make all kinds of noises, but who listens? And if you have ethics advisers who you dismiss, and now um, Liz Truss apparently not wanting to appoint an ethics advisor, so who can champion the civil service if it's not the head of government and indeed ministers who themselves are undermining the impartiality and attacking the objectivity of civil servants? And, and Brexit was such a profound intellectual wedge that divided not just the country, but the governing classes. We talked about the priority of our new monarch, which is to keep the United Kingdom united. But One way of looking at the past 20 or so years is that devolution has created divisions rather than brought us together. That will continue. And that perhaps the new prime minister in saying that the first minister of Scotland is an attention seeker, we should ignore it. Perhaps she plays into uh, another narrative. Uh, Anthony King, great constitutional expert, uh, passed away sadly a few years ago. He, He wrote in a book of the British Constitution that in the end, it may be effectively English nationalism and English resentment about the devolution to other places which pulls us apart. And that in itself might be unstoppable. I just wonder what your thoughts were on that, whether you are an optimist on the union or whether you feel that we are just slowly, slowly drifting apart. So it only happened in 1707, the union of 
parliaments and Ireland was only united in 1801 and Wales in 1485 and then the 1530s legally. So it's a relatively new construct, the United Kingdom. And just because it existed separately before makes one think that those countries could indeed exist separately again in the future. Presumably Liz Trust has been advised about the language to use and what will be most effective with the core voters in the middle in Scotland. David Cameron had nightmares on the night of the election in September 2014 when he thought he might lose the referendum and that Scotland might become independent. And he was comparing himself, wandering around in a cold sweat, imagining that he would be akin to Lord North, Prime Minister under George III at the time that uh, of the US Declaration of Independence. The Prime Minister will take it very personally, as well as the monarch. Personally, I think it's a matter of when, not whether, Scotland will become independent. I think a lot depends upon the relationship that can be worked out with the EU and Scotland. It's a long time since a prime minister could truly speak to a United Kingdom and make all parts of the United Kingdom feel that the prime minister was speaking for them. Necessarily, a prime minister was ever going to be head of a tribe, Conservative or Labour, for the last hundred years. And therefore, monarch is all the more important because the monarch is beyond tribe and can speak to the whole country above political affiliation. And if the monarch doesn't have that same glue that Queen Elizabeth clearly had in Scotland, uh, then that could be a worrying moment and could win the SNP an extra two or three percent of votes. Although goodness knows what will happen if it's enormously close on such an issue of such great significance for the Scots. We presume that stability and good order and civil obedience and, and democratic forces and continuity of offices and traditions and principles will always continue in Britain. There are some encouraging signs about Westminster and Whitehall representing the whole of the country better, but it will be a tough five or ten years. This will be seen as a post-Brexit, post-change of monarch, post-assault on the impartiality and the integrity of the civil service and the judiciary, and with the BBC losing its gel, uniting the country with one voice in the face of the multiplicity of different media outlets with their own partisan perspectives. What will hold the still centre uh, as Yates talked about in the second coming, we've just lost this week uh, a mighty force gluing us together. Indeed we have. And I'm not sure which Yatesian rough beast might be slouching <laughs> towards <laughs> Bethlehem. It's time come at last. But I have uh, had great enjoyment out of our conversation, Sir Anthony. Thank you very much, Sir Anthony Selden there. Thank you. Thank you very much. And if you enjoyed this podcast, you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. There's a link in the show notes or just search for Bunker Patreon Podcast. This is Gavin Esler. Thanks for joining me in the bunker. Bunker.